From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. Today, we go back to May 26, 2022. The community was still reeling from the racist attack on the Jefferson Avenue tops that left 10 black people dead and three others wounded. The management of Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO came to the conclusion that a forum, a platform, was needed to allow for the conversations that were necessary in the aftermath of that event. This is how Buffalo What's Next came about, and today marks the bittersweet anniversary for this program. In the months that followed its inception, Buffalo What's Next has featured a tapestry of voices, stories, and issues from the community. On this special one-year retrospective episode of Buffalo What's Next, Producers Picks, we'll hear from the contributors who have helped the show fulfill its mission of giving a voice to underrepresented and marginalized groups. We'll hear from members of our production staff as they offer up their impressions and thoughts about the work that's been done in this first year. In true Producers Picks form, they'll each offer a highlight from a standout and meaningful interview they've been a part of. First, we hear from Bridget Jaipal Valenza, WBFO Managing Editor and Executive Producer of Buffalo What's Next. Bridget Jaipal Valenza, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm well, and I'm thankful for this opportunity to speak with you. This has been quite a year for this program and for this radio station. And we are reflecting back a year ago. Let's just take a moment, if we could, just to give the listeners of the show how it all originated, because it was quite a hectic couple of days before the show actually went on the air one year ago today. It was an incredibly hectic and sad time for the for the newsroom for the city of Buffalo um, in the hours after the tragedy uh, we were just trying to get coverage on the air keep people informed of what had happened there was so so much going on and then in between all of that trying to help people deal with the shock of having something like this happen in their community so, yeah, it was long days, long nights, um, 15, 16, 17-hour days uh, in the week or so in between when we started Buffalo What's Next. Was there an understanding right off the bat that we hear the talk about need to have conversations, conversations to take place, but that was there really an understanding that this radio station and this hour that was set aside could really fulfill that particular need? Was that understood? I think that we knew that in the back of our brains. Obviously, like we said, there was a lot going on. So to try to stop and really process exactly what this could mean for the community was not necessarily top of my mind. It was, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in order to put a show on the air. And so I was a bit consumed with that. Um, But as soon as word had gotten out the extent of the tragedy and exactly why Buffalo was targeted as an organization, we made the decision that we are going to dedicate time and space for this, for whatever conversation, for whatever healing, for whatever, you know, difficult issue that is there that we can perhaps talk it out and and find solutions. So it was a bit of a no-brainer, but obviously a bit of a a scary thing to 
walk in one day and find out that this is what you're going to be doing. Right, right. So I recall that conversation that happened two days, <laughs> one year ago and two days and ago two for days me. Ago. Yes. Um, over 200 shows have been produced now. And you hear more than anybody, not only comments from inside the building and from the management who were, were responsible for mm-hmm. pushing the show forward. And I will use the word push. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you also hear a lot from outside as well. Yes. What have been some of the notable thoughts and comments that you've heard? For the most part, it really has been eye-opening for members of our listening audience. Um, there are things and terms and issues that, because of the way people are living, don't necessarily come across their radar. Um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know that the East Side only has one grocery store if you live in Genesee County. You know, those things don't necessarily directly impact you, but here we have this whole event that has happened because of systems and policies in place, and we can't ignore that. So I think for a lot of people, they didn't quite understand why, Um, and this show has helped them to understand the why, uh, and they're grateful for that. Um, There's a lot of just questions that are being answered for people who may be kind of afraid to ask or a little timid to ask or don't know who to ask. Um, And so to have these conversations that really highlight the needs, the disadvantages, the opportunities uh, on the east side or in the city of Buffalo proper, um, they're able to put those resources together and perhaps do something or if nothing else, just simply be more educated about the issues. Nothing worthwhile comes without a certain amount of hard work and commitment for sure. Mm. Has it been worth it? I think it has. Um, My personal belief is that as long as we can have a conversation about something, then both parties walk away with some basic knowledge of the standpoint of the other person. You don't need to agree with it. In fact, a lot of us don't necessarily agree with a lot of things that, you know, we come in contact with uh, or we don't like it or it makes us unhappy. Um, That it's part of learning. And so any part of learning, I think, is worth it. Absolutely. Uh, There's no way that any of the issues on the east side or Buffalo proper or in some other communities, Niagara County, Wyoming County, would ever come to light if we didn't have this program to be able to focus in completely on the issue and try to come up with solutions. Our producer, Lorenzo Rodriguez, asked me to try to pick out a a show of mine that uh, I found particularly memorable I believe he asked you the same question. What was your answer? A lot of the first interviews that I had done um, were very memorable. Um, They dealt with unmasked grief, um, bare, raw emotion, um, personal, deeply, deeply personal stories of 
people who were lost, of, you know, the way life for anyone on the east side has changed that day, um, for anyone who frequents that area has changed. Um, those were the first, honestly, that came to mind because they were so raw. Right. Um, I decided not to choose any of those, however. Okay. <laughs> now that I've now that I've talked all <laughs> about <laughs> them, uh, if people would like to listen to them, obviously they can go to YouTube. They can, you know, click on past episodes, and I would definitely encourage them to do so. There is a reason that I didn't choose any of those, and that is I also believe that the neighborhood shouldn't be re-traumatized. I mean, yes, we are at the one-year anniversary. We're at the, you know, the one-year-old birthday for our show, um, but that doesn't mean that we should ignore the work that we've done, and part of that is is doing no harm. <laughs> uh, and so I just felt that those interviews in particular would be highly triggering. Um, but they aren't the only memorable interviews that we've done, that I've done. And one of them includes the play and the cast of Once on this Island, which was playing at Shays maybe six months ago-ish. Right. Uh, and we had the cast in, including two young ones who were playing uh, roles in the in the cast, and we had them come on. I interviewed the actors. Um, about the most memorable moment of that interview was when I asked them what advice they would have for their younger selves. And um, I think... As an interviewer, that kind of threw them a little, uh, <laughs> and so I was a bit, you know, taken aback by okay, there's there's silence, um, but it wasn't silence because they didn't know what they wanted to say. It was silence because the question for them really hit home, and they both ended up sort of crying a little as they told me what they would, the advice they would give to their their younger selves. Um, so that too is memorable, and that's the one that you'll probably hear. How difficult is it for an actor of color to break into theater? Mm. I mean, and and I guess I'm I'm speaking specifically really about stage arts, mm -hmm. not necessarily movies, because while we would strive for 100% representation, um, there is a sense in in Hollywood for for movies that you know you might have actors of color. That that's not a weird, odd thing, but. Right. Right people don't necessarily see the stage version of Macbeth having... Right. Yeah, um, I would like to say there's not a lot of parts written for us. I mean, we were yeah. just having a conversation yesterday yeah. with another cast member, but... That's... A, I think that's quite a bit of a question. There's a lot that goes into that, but um, I think what it really comes down to is it's a systemic issue, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's a gatekeeping issue. I think there's a, a lot of people, one who are hiring and casting for these things that only see black actors being in roles that are specifically made for black people. Um, you know, how many times have you seen Rent and the two black people in the show are Collins and and, mm -hmm. and um, Benny, I believe his name is? Um, but yeah, so how many times do you see Rent and it's the two black actors are those two gentlemen? And why have we not seen a, a black Mark or a black Roger or a black Mimi? Well, we've seen black Mimi, excuse me. But um, but yeah, so, how, so I think a lot of times we see these people who, people who are casting that just think, Black role, black person. Um, but also I think there's a lot of 
gatekeeping when it comes to opportunity and and a lot of times people come out of a conservatory system, they mm-hmm. come out of big training schools, and there's a lot of inequality in the education system where a black student may not be able to go to these big theater schools and get that BFA or get that that um, that master's degree in theater that opens a gate for them to go out into the world and really get these audition opportunities. So I think we have to talk about how gatekeeping is preventing yeah. an opportunity, is preventing people from even getting in the space, right. being even being in the room. Like you're not even allowed to get into that room unless you've gone through a, a system that really has been created to help develop non people of color and those systems perpetuate the idea that there can't be multiple black experiences like it makes it seem like this is the black experience and this is only one thing but the way i exist it may not be the same as the way marcus exists or the same as you exist right we we it devalues our experience as a whole right and we walk into a room and you see our color before you see us as the actor which is not necessarily great because you if i were to go in for you know anything goes you're not going to look at me and say oh he's going to be a great actor he's a great dancer or whatever you're going to say oh he's black and usually billy and anything goes is not black so mm. am i going to cast this guy probably not you know what i mean and so it's just we have a lot of barriers that we have to get through from the onset, you know, mm-hmm. even before we get in the room. So, yeah, it's 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 difficult. <laughs> Do you think the sense of not seeing people of color in terms of having, um, you know, a space in Middle Earth or under the sea uh, really is f- sort of the start of that gatekeeping if, if we don't or cannot see ourselves in ourselves in that space being that character you know being an elf or a mermaid um then certainly we wouldn't push for something like that yeah i mean you see a lot of times you i i see a lot of auditions come through and i may or may not submit for just knowing that you know i i may not fit what they're looking for just because i'm black you know i'm Mm -hmm. i'm you know i might be able to move or dance or, or i might be a tenor and they're looking for a tenor but if I see that it's a certain role, you know, sometimes you might have trepidation even submitting yourself for that because you haven't seen that before. Um, So I think that, again, that's why it's important for us to see ourselves on stage, see ourselves on screen, um, because we need to know that it is possible for you to be a mermaid. It's possible <laughs> to be an elf. You can be it's whatever you totally want to be. Whatever you, <laughs> whatever you, you want. You can like you can as an actor, you can do something other than you know ragtime. You know, it's possible. I know. It, it's a beautiful show. Love ragtime, but like you know, it, it is possible to do something other than that. Well, certainly because you have the title of actor. Indeed. That part. <laughs> We're gonna act as if. <laughs> What would your younger self say to you now? Your younger self has gone and seen this show, and they are ecstatic. And what would your younger self say to you? Oh, wow. I know. I feel I'm like I'm going to make you cry. cry. I no, think no. I'm going to cry. I'm talking to actors. We're emotional. Like, Stop wait that. Wait a second. Like, the amount of t- different parts that I cry on stage would be baffling me. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you go. You go. I need to think. <laughs> <laughs> My younger self speaking to me. I'm. It's weird. I'm seeing him. Um, oh, come on. Look at him. I uh, I think he would say, wow, I'm, I'm 
I'm proud that you never stopped. I'm proud that you never stopped because, you know, I grew up in Compton, California. Mm. I have no idea. I had no idea what I was doing when I decided to go into stage and, and music and all that. And there are many a time when I could have just been like, oh, I'm just going to do something else. Uh, you know, after college, I actually went into real estate for a while and I was doing that and, and that was fine, but it wasn't fulfilling me. And, mm-hmm. yep. and I think my younger self would have, would look at me now and say, good on you for not stopping because you're here. So mm-hmm. your younger self has a seat at this table. Absolutely. Come on. Yeah. At yeah. whatever table you want to sit at. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely not avoiding you. <laughs> and didn't forget about you. you. Didn't forget about no, I did not. About me. Same question. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking, this is so funny because uh, my mom came to see the show this past Sunday and she's she lives in Ohio, so she's driving her and my two um, siblings back to Ohio this morning and she dropped me off and She's just like, Shauna, she's about to have a cry moment, you know. She's like, Shauna, you are doing the thing. And I know you're you're saying what would my child self say, but I'm also thinking about the those moments when we say, like, you are your ancestors' dreams. Like, that's literally what my mom was saying. But it, it's like, I am my parents' dreams. And I think, in, I believe in my experience um, growing up, I am honored and privileged to say that I was never given the brown girl narrative, that the you are not enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I was always filled with with love and compassion and of uh, you can do this. And I think I would say to my younger self that you're doing the things, Jana, you're doing all of the things that you want to do and you will continue to do the things that you desire and you dream of and that you can keep dreaming and God will continue to supersede it. So um, to all the little girls out there, you just keep dreaming and do the thing. I'd like to take a moment as well to share some thoughts. Our producer, Lorenzo Rodriguez, asked me to come up with one program in this first year that was particularly memorable. As I started reflecting, I also just recently had a conversation with April Baskin, who is the chair of the Erie County Legislature, and she said this during our interview just the other day. She said, you'd be surprised at the magic a black woman can create. When I was first asked to think back to the earliest days of this program, two interviews actually came to mind. They were from India Walton and Zanetta Everhart. Very powerful, hour-long interviews with both very magical individuals. Unfortunately, They are currently running against each other in a common council race, and the other unfortunate part is only one of them can win. But since we have rules about equal time, we can't go back and play those particular interviews, so we chose another one. This was from uh, an artist, her name, Itina Fareed Cook, and we spent a full hour together recording remotely at Buffalo Art Studio, and Itina's journey is really amazing. She was a foster child. She was labeled by counselors and others early in her life, that she would never thrive. Well, she has done more than thrive. She is an important artist in this community, and she was very gracious enough to spend an hour with Buffalo What's Next. 
the latest project that I that I worked on is Tales from the Porch. Right. And I've incorporated my music in that process. You know, so. So that's your music I hear on there. Yes. Ah. So original music. So the Tales from the Porch is going to be original. You know, that's obscured, by the way. On your, <laughs> I was watching some of the videos on YouTube. It gets obscured who has who contributed the music. I was yeah. I was hustling back to try to find it. I couldn't. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, congratulations on that. Absolutely. So uh, you, you brought it up then. The Tales from the Porch. Yes. Wow. Wow. Um, I encourage people to go. Easy way to find it is YouTube and, yeah, and go Tales from the Porch and uh, probably get, yeah, focused get focused on there as well. Um, the ones I was able to look at are just absolutely beautiful. Um, I guess maybe just uh, why don't we just maybe give an overview. Let, let you yeah. overview it and then we can break it down from there. Of course. Overview for me, Tales from the Porch. Tales from the Porch is a, a constant project giving voices to the community. Um, minorities and you know emerging artists organizations it's not limited limited to that but um, just showcasing the community the hope is always everything that I do the hope is to ignite thought and expand perspectives so we're telling stories or allowing for uh, these individuals to tell their stories based off of their platform their porch the porch is this space that's not quite public and not quite private hmm. It's a space that you would have to be invited to in order to experience, you know. And then, you know, who knows where where it goes from there. Maybe you'll be invited inside or what have you. But it's this platform, you know. So we captured these different stories of different people within the community um, in order to just showcase and highlight what they do for their community, their hearts and their passions um, from their porch perspective. And so the one that we just did last year focused on seven black leaders. Um, it was my response to what happened at mm, Tops. Okay. You know, um, I wanted to showcase individuals that I felt were doing the work. They've been doing the work. This wasn't new just because this thing happened. They were doing work for years and they're going to continue to do the work. Um, it also came from my pastor, Pastor Stephen Foreman Sr., who in, in uh, the congregation, he said, we must overcome evil with good, which is biblical, some biblical. And I wanted to utilize my skill and my talent in order to showcase good. I wanted to focus on that. I didn't want to focus on the evil that occurred. Um, I wanted to focus on those individuals that were doing good, you know. So I gathered a whole, <laughs> a whole lot of people together. Um, my team is it's it's extensive uh, to tell these stories. Different creatives came together and helped to um, showcase these stories in many different ways. You're you can reflect back. You're the young girl who grew up on Sherman Street, mm -hmm. and here you are right now. But you know the city. You know the city very well. What does Buffalo need? Oof. What does Buffalo need? There's so much. Yeah. There's, I have thoughts. I, I, I'd say God. Faith. That's what I'd say. The fear of God. The development of faith. The ability to see others as human. To have empathy. To have grace. I think not only Buffalo, but this world needs that. You can't tell me that there's not a creator with all this creativity. And if we tap in and understand what is being said or what is being taught through that creator, who, you know, in my perspective, as God, 
we start to understand that, you know, all this time, all that was ever spoken about is agape love unconditional love. When love is unconditional, I don't see you as white, black, Hispanic, or all of these titles and labels. I see you as human, I see you as me. If we can see each other as ourselves, we would move differently. If I treat you like I wanna be treated, let's think about that, right? If I treated you as you wanted to be treated, if I treated you with respect, if I treated you justly, equitably, if I listened and was active in that, if I, if, I wanted, if I seek first to understand, then to be understood, if I'm slow to anger, if I'm quick to listen, slow to speak, if I care enough about you, imagine all of us living that way. Is it complicated? Yes, because we're navigating through all of these hurdles of all of these different experiences that we had that shapes our perspective, that builds assumptions about each other, that creates these barriers and these mountains that we don't know how to push to the side and get to the end all be all, that you're just as human as me. I think that's what everybody needs, right? And what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. It's not a thing wrong with that, you know? But it's not as simple as it said. You know, it takes time. And everybody needs to just do their thing and continue to showcase humanity. And this is how I choose to showcase it. And this is how I choose to live out the dash that's between life and death. This is what I choose to do with it. WBFO multimedia reporter and Buffalo What's Next contributor, Anjali Press. Buffalo, what's next mean to me? Simple question, not so simple answer. I don't think I could properly articulate what it means to me fully. I will say that the show has given visibility to people from my community. Being from the East Side, I absolutely can relate to what our guests who have lived on the East Side or are currently living in communities on the East Side When they talk about the disenfranchisement, the dilapidated houses and buildings, the vacant lots, because I've seen that too growing up and seeing the lack of investment in the neighborhood that I grew up in made me feel unseen, made me feel like my voice wasn't being heard, made me feel like I did not matter. So to be able to have this platform and to have voices come on who feel or have felt similar, it's powerful. It's powerful when when you come from a marginalized community and you feel like your voice has been silenced or you feel like you don't have a voice. And then to get on a public platform where thousands of people are listening to speak about issues that matter to you is something that I don't take for granted. And it fuels me to continue to seek out voices from everywhere within our community. So an episode that stands out to me, and I'm being biased, (laughs) but with great reason, when Damon Young and Dr. Madge Whiskey came into our downtown studios to talk about Pearl Young, and Pearl was one of the victims of May 14th, to hear Damon, her son, reminisce about her life and talk about how she was as a mother and 
how she was as a as a teacher and who she was, how much she mattered to her Sunday school students and also the students that she taught in the Buffalo Public Schools and the ambrosia salad that she was known for that it doesn't matter if you don't like ambrosia salad, you gonna like Miss Pearl's ambrosia salad and that's that. <laughs> so to hear her loved ones, to have her loved ones share herself and who she was with me is I still hold that very close to me and I'm honored that they came and spoke to us about her. Madge I want to start with you first. You took over uh, Mrs. Pearl's duties at the church. Can you explain what she did at the church? Okay I met Mrs. Pearl. It's ironical so let me give a little introduction to the first time I saw her I came out of the train station at the corner of Humboldt and Main Street. And I was walking on the viaduct to get over to Kensington. And there was this lady standing with a sign that said, stop. So I stopped. And then I said, what's with the sign? She says, well, when anyone sees the sign and stop, I take that opportunity to tell them about Christ. And then she looked at me and said, I don't think I need to tell you, you look like a Christian. So I said, I sure am. I said, but this is a unique way of evangelizing. So she will stand at that corner with that stop sign that says stop. And she used that as a, a tool to introduce people to Christ. Little did I know that a few years later, both of us would be members at the same church. How long ago was that? This was almost 30 years ago. Wow. I was with Kojic, and then I decided to go over to Bishop's church, Bishop Young's church on Leroy, walk into the church and saw this. I said, that's a woman with a stop sign. So from then, you know, we connected. She was over what is called our missionary board. That's where all the women who are missionary, she was over us. Sister Pearl was a go-getter. She was a ball of fire. <laughs> she was the missionary president. She was the Sunday school teacher. She was the soup maker. She was everything. She did everything in the church. And you know, we connected. Um, we started to work together in ministry. It's tragic what has happened because it has affected our church. She was not just a member of Good Samaritan. Her late husband was the assistant pastor of Good Samaritan. And that's your father, right? And Damon? that's, yes. yes, Damon's father. And he also was the brother of the present Bishop Glenwood H. Young. So it's not that she was, and I, I'm saying this very cautiously, just a member, but she was one of the founding members of Good Samaritan Church. And she taught Sunday school to the children, right? Yes, she did. How was it navigating? Um, how did the children feel? Sister Pearl, let me break it down this way. In Sunday school, there are different age groups and classes. So you have the little ones, you have the beginners, you have primary, you have preteen, teen, adults. So you may have a category of five different classes with five different teaching manuals. Sister Pearl will study every lesson for every age group. So when she comes into Sunday school, she's normally with the little ones. 
But if something happened and the teens are there and they don't have a teacher, she knew what their lesson was because she already studied it. So she can go teach them. And she not only taught Sunday school, she was also the soup maker. So a lot of the children like going to the Sunday school because they know she will have soup for them <laughs> after Sunday school. <laughs> so that's where the idea of the food pantry and soup kitchen came from because she just loved making soup and giving it out to the children. Damon, do you remember your, like when you were growing up with your mom, do you like remember her being involved in church? Like Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's, yes. And she would ta tag me along with her to be involved as well um, when I was younger. So I do remember it. And I just, um, like Sister Whiskey said, I don't really see, I didn't never really see a change in her energy is what I can say for the church. Um, she just always wanted to be doing something um, with the kids. She uh, always like brought them breakfast stuff uh, for before Sunday school. And I remember seeing one of the younger kids whose grandmother, um, is one of my friend's grandmother. So this is this young boy's great-grandmother. And I come to church for Mother's Day and got up and spoke about my mom. And then I saw the young boy the next day. He was like, I didn't know that Mama Pearl was your mom. And I'm like, yeah, man, I, you know, that's my mom. She gave me honey buns all the time. <laughs> and, you know, but it was like that, you know, it was the relation like that. You know, we come in, we come into Sunday school, we're going to be taught, fed, nurtured. And that's just, you know, really what my mom was to me. And even continue to be, this would be the, most powerful female voice for me that I would listen to. I have to, it's a hundred percent certain. So, um, you know, I miss her presence. I miss her guidance. Still, I would listen to my mom go to for her advice. It sounds like mm -hmm. she was a mother to the community. Mm -hmm. So what, um, cause you mentioned that she cooked, she liked cook soup. Um, was there like a dish or something that like you loved that like she always made sure that you had? Like what was what was something that your mom cooked that nobody else could make? Well, I, this was me and her dish was the ambrosia. Oh. The ambrosia salad? <laughs> yes, like I love ambrosia Oh love my it. God. It's just, I could eat it for days. And to me, it get better after it sit actually for a day, <laughs> a day or two. So I, that was me and her favorite dish and um, we've, brought some at tops it's been other times people have made some and i mean we just both used to just sit down and like critique it and well you know it's not like how mine it so that's one that's would be my favorite dish that she made that i just don't think nobody else can make it <laughs> and if i could piggyback on that what um damon said that was the dish she brought to every cook up we have a church. So just and know that everybody will be Sister Mother Pearl Pearl's ambrosia. <laughs> she gonna bring that ambrosia salad. Yes, yes. <laughs> I wanna talk about um, your mom's community service because she's been doing this. She's She was in the, in, in the community for years uh, with her soup kitchen um, and, and feeding people. Um, can you both talk uh, more about that? Uh, Damon, we'll start with you. Well, I just, Clearly, I would just remember my mom from, was it Dewey Street? Did it start Leroy and then go to Dewey or was it Dewey Street first? I just, my mom was just always volunteering at the, at the, uh, it's the church pantry is what it was, the Good Samaritan pantry. And she just always volunteered there and they fed the community and brought things to the community um, on a weekly basis. I got to Good Samaritan. It was already in operation. Mm -hmm. She has been part of that pantry every Saturday morning. And if I can just go back a little mm -hmm. to bring 
um, his dad in, Elder Oliver. Bishop, he's still saying, up to today, how long has your father passed away? 2013, I believe. In 2013. And up to today, Bishop Young still misses his father because of the fact Elder Oliver, which was Sister Pearl's husband, was everything at Good Samaritan. He will go shovel the snow, open the door, do the prayer service. So what happened? God brought two people together that meshed with their commitment, first of all, to Christ and their commitment to their church. So Sister Pearl worked neck and neck with her husband. So every Saturday, she would be at that food pantry. She made sure she prayed first. When the people come in, she used the opportunity to tell them about Jesus before they could get their box of food. She would say, let me tell you something about Jesus. And then she would give the, and she has, she did that ever since I said, I'm in Good Samaritan about 30 years now. And I met her doing that every Saturday morning. As Damon said, and I alluded to earlier, um, she made sure the kids at the church was fed. Um, she was my three sons, grandsons rather, Sunday school teacher. And when they asked the children at the church when the tragedy happened, what you miss m most about Mother Pearl, they said, we miss her feeding us mm -hmm. <laughs> in church. You know, so she has impacted the lives of every one of us at Good Samaritan and beyond. If you could have had other people come in here, you would have heard um, the testimony of her traveling across America doing evangelism work. Right now we are at, this is one of our sad points at Good Samaritan because every year for the Easter service, she would do the crucifixion as a monologue by herself every year. So Bishop didn't even have to ask. She said, I'm ready. And she will go up there and recite that whole crucifixion. And I remember one year, my grandson was on the drums, and she liked when it, when it reached the path, and they nailed him to the cross. She liked them to rattle the drum, and he wasn't doing it. And she said, do it, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> you, know, and, uh, you know, so she's pounding the nails in, and she wants the drum to be going, nail him to the cross. So we are going to miss that. Because that has been gone from our church. That's something we look, it's, if you want to call it a tradition, but it was a good tradition. Everybody, Sister Pearl is going to do the crucifixion. Every one of us at Good Samaritan is still affected. As Damon says, um, I cannot comprehend what he's going through, what Pam is going through, what James is going through. And the thing about it is that the the three of them, I had connections with them. I had connections with James. He happened to be my grandson's coach, track coach. So they travel all over America with James. I had connection with Pam because she herself is an evangelist missionary, and she grew up in the same church that I came with with her mother. But um, Pearl and, and Gloria, which is her sister-in-law, they were very close. They did almost everything together. Every Sunday they went out to dinner after church, you know. And um, that same Saturday, there was a prayer breakfast. And they both went to the prayer breakfast. And they said it was so heartwarming to see. Pearl Young is in a prayer breakfast, getting up and praising God and doing her spiritual dance. 
in the prayer breakfast. And then the week prior to that, we had our workers meeting. And two things were significant, and Bishop always speak about it. Each of us, whether we like to or not, we have our little special seat in church. So she has her little special seat that she sat, I sit two rows behind her. But for that workers meeting, the jurisdictional workers meeting, she was on the other side of the church. And they say every night of that service, she was up in that service just praising God and dancing. And they say people were look. some people taped her. They say, we know Sister Pearl liked to shout and dance, but it's something this week. She is shouting every night. And then come the Saturday at the prayer breakfast, it carried over. When they left the prayer breakfast, she told her sister in law, Gloria, I need to go buy tops. So she said, I normally go buy the tops on Main, but since you are coming up Jefferson, drop me at the one on Jefferson. So Gloria said to her, you know, I'm tired. So what do you want to do? Me wait. Well, she said, no, you're going home because you're tired. So I could either take the Jefferson bus because it's on my route, or I could take a nice walk, right? I want the public to understand. Damon said it. And even though I'm a Christian and I'm a minister, there are some things I still don't understand. That day at that Jefferson Tops, there was Gloria, who is Pearl's sister-in-law, in the car. There was another member of Good Samaritan who Sister Pearl stood up and talked to in the tops. So Gloria left, Sister Makar left, but Pearl was shot. Do I understand why? No. Maybe I have to wait till I get to heaven for God to explain that one to me. But one thing that I'm sure about, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know she made it to heaven. And because I knew her lifestyle, and it's as though God was giving us that last vision of her, Sister Pearl, you know. And she had a favorite scripture verse. She said that almost every time she get up mm -hmm. before she finished week, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Every time Sister Pearl get up, she has to quote that scripture. I just spoke a couple of weeks ago at our church, and I had to quote the scripture in memory of Sister Pearl because it has affected us so much. As I said, my seat, I sit like two rows behind where she sat, and I keep looking at that spot, and I'm saying, are you really gone? But one day I'm going to see you walking up here, and somebody say, oh, it was a hoax. But she is gone. She is missed. And there's not a day that has gone by, not a service that has gone by. Sometimes our service is high, and everybody's praising God in church, and somebody will go, oh, if Sister Pearl was here, if Mother Pearl was here, she's missed. You know, um, we have a hope as believers that we are going to see her again. And as I told someone, if we could get to talk to Sister Pearl right now, as much as Damon is missing and hurting, and James is missing and hurting, and Pamela is missing and hurting, and her grandchildren, and her church, and you say, um, Pearl, you want to come back? She's going to look at us and say, are you all crazy? I'm in heaven with Jesus. I ain't coming back down in that filthy world. You know, you all need to come and be where I am. You know, and that's what gives us the, the confidence, the comfort, the assurance to know it was an evil deed, but God is still in control. And even as Damon says, he don't understand. I don't understand either. But we know somewhere in this whole scenario, 
God allowed it to happen for a purpose. You know, Pearl is missed. That woman with a stop sign. <laughs> with her ambrosia salad. At the ambrosia salad. <laughs> Associate producer, Charles Gilbert. The one that stands out the most to me, and I had to think about this one, because ideally what my first one, my first pick would have been um, Darius Prison. However, I didn't go with that one. I went with one that means the most to me because I had involvement in it. It was my first time being involved in creating something in here that had what I feel like is going to have a lasting impact, which is the Buffalo and Charleston roundtable discussion we had prior to Charleston week. And just to recall, you were part of the team that went to Charleston to do extensive reporting on that city's healing process since their racist attack in 2015. That is correct. Did you come away with that, from that trip, with a sense of hope? Yes, but not in, not in a long time. Like, I don't see hope, like, within the next two, three years, just because with Charleston, they're still recovering from it. And that was eight years ago. And if people think that, you know, we're going to recover as quickly, I don't think it's going to be the case. The takeaway from your trip to Charleston. It's a beautiful city with an awful history. And a lot of that history is on display. But I think you, if you really want to get to know Charleston, you got to do some digging. And that digging is not going to be pleasant. Holly Kirkpatrick? My takeaway from my time in Charleston, but also from just listening to the conversations held on this program here is that change comes from the people it comes from the community first and by listening to the community you know by taking solutions from the community rather than swooping in and trying to save the day you know that's how change really happens good change charles gilbert well one thing that i wanted to bring up that it don't know how it drew a blank in my mind but um going back to when you had originally asked me my experience, my time there, big on energy, big on just, you know, being around atmospheres, things like that. But one thing that stood out to me was, and we didn't bring this up, was our trip to Sullivan Island. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for those that are unaware, Sullivan Island is a beach out in Charleston. And thanks to our managing editor Bridget, who happened to um, enlighten me on the significance of it. That was the last stop for slaves before going into quarantine, then going off to be auctioned off. And upon entering the beach, you know, we're walking through a bridge. I'm hearing, you know, swamp, because it's in a swamp area. So obviously you're gonna hear swamp life. And as I alluded earlier about seeing 
being like looking at the plantation houses, seeing that, being at Mother Emanuel, seeing that, but to actually see in my mind my ancestors on this beach as I was, everyone was all around the beach, everyone's enjoying and having fun. I'm sitting there walking around in circles, telling myself like I'm walking in the same footprints as my ancestors. Do anybody here at that beach know what they're on? This is something that, you know, left a lasting impression for me. Like Thomas said, you know, it's a beautiful place, but it's rooted. The the history there is so it's so ugly. You know, Holly, I believe that something you kept alluding to me and you kept saying to me while we were in Charleston was the picture reference. How if you look closer into the picture, you'll see I probably butchered it for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you did a pretty good job. It's, it's a it's a picture postcard type of place, but don't go reaching into that picture, or maybe do go reaching into that picture, because uh, you know you're, it's going to be pretty greasy and grimy actually if you reach in and and just you don't even really have to scratch the surface. It's it's right there. Yeah. It's right there. Tom Barrage. Um, I, I'll echo a lot of what everybody else was saying here, and uh, Charles, to, to piggyback off what you were saying, until you brought it up to me in the moment, I didn't realize the significance of Sullivan Island either. Um, is, it, is it Sullivan Islands or Sullivan's Landing? Island. Okay. Um, but uh, Charleston is indeed, no doubt, it's a beautiful city. Um, I couldn't help but notice while we were there, um, all white tourists. Right. Wall-to-wall white tourists, and it makes me wonder, why are they there? Because they heard Charleston is a nice town, which it is, Mm -hmm. or are they there to learn something? And I really hope that's the case, but I don't know. It was really interesting, and I, I certainly hope that people go there, and they go there for the right reasons. WBFO multimedia reporter and Buffalo What's Next contributor, Thomas O'Neill White. What does Buffalo What's Next mean to me? Well, in a lot of ways, the show and the positive feedback we've received has been a compliment to the work I do as WBFO's racial equity reporter. Through the lens of the tragedy of 514, all of Buffalo and all of Western New York can learn more about the systemic issues plaguing the region, but also learn about the people and organizations who are trying to dismantle those problems and build a Western New York that is equitable for all. Giving a voice to folks who don't feel as if they are being heard is part of our jobs as journalists. And especially from my line of reporting, getting from the ground up analysis from residents in underserved communities is of the utmost importance. What I'm not featuring here, but an important interview nonetheless, is my talk with retired Fire Department Chief Garnell Whitfield, whose mother Ruth was killed inside Tops on May 14th. It was emotional for both of us, and I wanted to hear him and hear what he had to say about a number of things related to the tragedy, but mostly I wanted to hear about the love he had for his mother and trying to move forward. Powerful stuff that I implore folks to listen to if they haven't heard it yet, and listen to it again if you have. And now for some levity. I want to highlight a conversation I had in the fall with Reggie Keith founder and operator of Canna House, a cannabis social club in Buffalo. 
With recreational marijuana use legalized in New York State in 2021, I felt it was important to talk to someone, and more specifically, a black man who was on the front lines of this nascent industry. So, relax and take notes and enjoy some of my interview with Reggie Keith. For those who who are not in the know, what is Canna House? What do you get? What do you guys do over there? Yeah, man. So we, um, at our origin, is uh, a cannabis-centric social club, but we've really evolved into a uh, consumer resource center of sorts, right? So we focus on. Um, we started with activity-based events, so creating dope spaces and safe spaces for people to consume. Right. We also provide product awareness, whether that's through reviews or safe sourcing. You know, we want to make sure people know how to get safe and um, good quality products. Uh, but education and advocacy, you know, those are our four pillars. That's what we stand on, making sure that the community uh, knowledge is ele- elevated because that allows for, you know, the easy integration for these new businesses into the community. Right. You can't just imagine you're going to pop up your multi-million dollar company next door to somebody who absolutely doesn't understand what you're doing. Uh-huh. Right. So it's important to educate them and get them on board, whether they are investors or just going to be your next door neighbor. Right. And then advocacy, you know, um, advocating for um, the consumer. You know, oftentimes the advocacy stops at the purchase. Once you purchase and you're, you know, um, have the product or the plant in your hand, um, you're kind of left to your own, you know, um, free will to kind of find your way around. And there uh, is an important opportunity and void in the market to make sure that people have um, a safe space to go to. And we want to advocate for that um, to be um, readily available in most communities. I was taking a look at a uh, another interview that you did, and you mentioned the term legal consumership. What does that mean? Yeah, so um, consuming as a you know as a pastime of the black community, we've we've oftentimes just uh, been spenders, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, what I really was referring to there is kind of the legal consumership of cannabis. But in general, uh, we really want to talk about the maturation in, uh, of consuming and educated consuming, right? And I think from a place of like maybe just buying your products out in the street, you kind of don't necessarily have a say-so outside of saying, hey, man, I don't really like this product. You know, next time I come back, give me something better, yeah. right? But, you know, in legal consumership, you have the ability to leverage your purchase power, right? And so if you're telling somebody, hey, I'm willing to come here and spend my money at your space— as a community, if we come together, we can then demand that, that that retail or that location then give us something in return other than just a product, right? If you're going to be in my community, this is what I'm expecting you to reinvest. You know, This is how I'm expecting you to impact the community around you, right? And those things are, um, I think, a big part of like a mature legal consumer um, you know, yeah. lifestyle. So what, what would that look like then? You know, you've got a, if you've got someone who is not of the community that has a business, a, a power-related business within that community, what does that give back to the community? What might that look like? Yeah, I think it is uh, dependent on the community itself, and I think it's important that you go and poll and ask that community what is it that they need, right? Oftentimes people go into communities thinking that they have this plan and they're going to come in and this is how they're going to help these folks. And mm-hmm. if those folks don't need that help, then that can be you know, taken a totally different way. And so it's important for you to go ask, hey, what, do I, what can I do for you here? Right. I'm instead gonna, of dictating, instead of dictating and say, hey, this is what I got. I'm yeah. Gonna give you these crumbs or I'm going to give you whatever we thought about in this room with these, you know, no offense. Usually like five white male guys are in a room putting together this plan and it is totally void of perspective. And that perspective usually leaves like a tone deaf approach to, you know, solving some of that community assistance. Is there a fear amongst you or the people you congregate with um, 
that the licenses to sell and grow maybe in large quantities will eventually or are already being gobbled up by the rich white guys. 1,000%, right? The industry's already 92% owned by, you know, white-owned companies, right? And that's, it's a sad story because this is a baby, it's an infant. There's no reason why it should be, it's, it's, it should grow up and have to turn into a white-dominated industry, right? We can be intentional about changing that. And big shout out to the majority leader, Crystal People Stokes. I will always, you know, say her name in the highest regard because nobody's intentionally created legislation to kind of combat that. Absolutely. She's a real trailblazer. Real trailblazer, man. Uh, The godmother is what I affectionately call her. (laughs) Um, You know, but she she made sure that the bill represented 50% um, representation of social equity applicants, right? Meaning, you know, folks affected by the war on drugs here, you know, our community, um, you know, veterans, women, um, and distressed farmers. Right. And so uh, of that group, we fit in a, a few of those categories. And it, that's important because if 50 percent of this industry looks like us, it can truly change our trajectory in our like our social economic you know, um, status here in the country. So we got a few minutes left and I've, I've got two two more questions okay. for you. Um, what's your favorite strain? Oof. gun to my head. I can't smoke anything else for the rest of my life. <laughs> it's sour diesel. Ah, it's just a grandma. It's just a. It's just a really good smoke, man. Always. I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah, yeah. Um, one another question I like to ask my guests. It's very broad, but you know, from your position, from where you're sitting, from where you're standing, what does Buffalo need? Oh man, Buffalo needs togetherness. Um, we just need to. Um, combine the talent that's here so much so much talent here so much skill here so much um energy for greatness that's here and i think there needs to be something that unites our efforts we need some kind of joint um desire whether that's just the upward motion of our communities and we all can agree to that um but in some way some fashion we need to kind of combine um, all of the talent that we have here We thank you for joining us today and throughout this year. On behalf of Buffalo What's Next, the promise is to continue to offer a space for members of our Western New York community to share stories and issues pertinent to them, just like it's been since the first episode. As a reminder, Buffalo What's Next airs on WBFO every weekday, 10 until 11, and is re-aired each night at 9. It's also available wherever you get your podcast or the Amplify app. Also, at WBFO.org. This has been Producers Picks. I'm Jay Moran, and thank you very much for listening. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. This is WBFO History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of May 22nd through May 28th. I'm your host and WBFO Program Director, Tom Barich. Niagara Falls, New York. What ended up becoming one of the largest environmental disasters of the 1970s was originally intended to be a planned community. Construction on Love Canal begins on May 23rd, 1894. May 15th, 1995, an earthquake measuring 3.0 on the Richter scale hits western New York. 
At the time, it's considered a, quote, once-in-a-lifetime event. Clearly it was not, since western New York does have a number of smaller quakes every year and even had one close to 4.0 on the Richter scale just this past February. May 28, 1832, Dr. Ebenezer Johnson is elected as the very first mayor of the city of Buffalo. He was mayor for less than one year and declined a second term. Buffalo couldn't seem to elect a mayor, and Ebenezer stepped up to the plate in 1834 and accepted a second and final term as mayor. While mayor, he founded the very first hospital in Buffalo, the McHose House, which specialized in caring for patients with cholera. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For WBFO, I'm Tom Barich.